0: difficult to keep the line between the past and the
1: present you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being we may be through with the past but the past is not through with
0: us
2: welcome back to the next picture show a movie of the week podcast devoted it a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release i'm keith phipps here again with scott tobias and tasha robinson Genevieve Kosky, our usual co-host, is not with us this week, but we promise she is alive and well and not in a tupperware container somewhere near a desert motel. Last week, we talked about Charlie Kaufman's unclassifiable 2008 directorial debut, Synecdoche, New York, in which a playwright attempts to recreate his life on a massive stage and opens the door to chaos. Asteroid City is a different sort of self-aware film about making art from a director of exacting control. But that doesn't mean the chaos isn't there. Wes Anderson is the most formally rigid director working today, a filmmaker of precisely timed shots and immaculately balanced compositions. But that's a response to chaos, not a rejection of it. Or as vulture critic Bilga Iberi puts it in his review of Asteroid City, quote, Anderson's obsessively constructed dioramas explore the very human need to organize, quantify, and control our lives in the face of the unexpected and the uncertain, end quote. The closest thing to an Anderson surrogate found in his films might be Chaz Tenenbaum, Ben Stiller's character in The Royal Tenenbaums, whose obsession with safety and careful planning stems from a knowledge of how quickly life can spin out of control. Asteroid City is a film about a bunch of eccentric characters encountering an alien, but it's also a film about loss. If Asteroid City has a central character, it's Augie Steenbeck, played by Anderson regular Jason Schwartzman a father who's using his family's cross-country trip to Asteroid City as an occasion to finally tell his four children that their mother has died. In the film's most moving moment, Schwartzman, as the actor playing Augie in the play within the TV special that serves as the film's framing device, it makes sense when you watch the movie, uh, wanders away seeking answers to why his character burns his hand, but also to more broader issues of death and grief and the cosmic silence that greets us whenever we ask such questions and what we do to make up for that silence. We'll talk it over after the break.
1: What's happening now? I don't know. I don't like the way that guy looked at us. The alien. alien.
2: How how did he look? Like we're doomed.
0: Maybe we are.
2: I've just been the president.
0: How long can they keep us in Asteroid City, legally? The world will never be the same. That's an alien doing Jeffy jacks. That's an alien at a top hat. What's out there?
1: The meaning of life. Maybe there is one.
2: Are you married?
1: I'm a widower, but don't tell my kids. You're saying her mother died three weeks ago.
0: Let's say she's in heaven, which doesn't exist for me, of course, but you're Episcopalian.
2: In my loneliness, I learned to give complete and unquestioning faith to the people I love. I don't know if that includes you, but it included my daughter and your four children. Sometimes I think I feel more at home outside the Earth's atmosphere. Oh wow, me too. They're strange, aren't they? are children compared to normal people. Yes, that's correct. It's true.
0: Mm. Train, train. So
2: Astro City. What do you think, Scott? Or are your impressions of Asteroid City? I wish I I wish I
1: could like give you a strong impression because it is a it is a film like a lot of Anderson films and especially a lot of recent Anderson films that is so dense and so well so layered and has so many characters and so much going on It's also a very small space too. That it's hard to know how it's hard to know how I feel about it. Really, I mean, it's that's a very strange thing to say on on a podcast in which we were talking about our feelings about a movie. But but I think I I feel like I'm still kind of sorting this film out. I mean, it has all of the things that you want to uh, that that you like in an Anderson film. It does. It it looks incredible. It's evocative. It, It it kind of bears down on a very specific time and place and feeling in American life. It has these elements of melancholy. It has these, uh, you know, kind of a moonrise kingdom-y teen romance on the side. There's a lot of stuff here, but as far as it's, but it is a very vexing film for me on first viewing. I, I didn't quite connect to it as immediately as I would have wanted to, but I have that feeling that again, I returned to it, and like so many other Wes Anderson films that, that have missed me slightly on the on first viewing, it might connect to me again later on. It was, it was one that I regretted not having the chance to see a second time before this podcast.
0: Yeah, I could stand three or four more views of this myself before we get into it, if we want to just break here and come back in about two weeks. (laughs) I have the same feeling of just, it's so dense. There's so much going on here, which is funny for a movie with such big, wide open spaces, both in the set design and just sort of between characters and between concepts. I came out of this one with a more positive feeling than I did with, say, The French Dispatch, which is another very dense movie where there's a lot going on, but where I felt even less of a sense of connection between the ideas, between the characters, between me and anything going on on screen. That one felt like a very clever movie, but also just sort of a a series of of gimcracks that uh, didn't necessarily fit together. And here everything seems to fit together. But in terms of kind of like sussing out a a bigger picture meaning to all of it, there's a repeated line late in the film that strikes me as kind of a thesis and a thesis that connects in a very meaningful way to uh, Synecdoche to, to a point where I really wonder if it was one of the major influences here. But with that out of the picture, there's just... This movie shifts so quickly between so many different characters who are all kind of experiencing their own thing and kind of navigating their own little worlds and their own little anxieties and their own little choices that it just feels really hard to uh, pin down kind of the connections between things.
2: So to me, the clarifying moment was the one I alluded to above. And it's a little spoilery, but it it is when... Uh, Schwarzenegger as the actor playing Augie Steenbeck, kind of wanders out of the play, so we're kind of out, of, which is you know essentially the, the bulk of the film, which looks like a which looks like a film. Um, yes, this is it is the odd you know it's the odd conceit that is actually somehow a representation of a play, uh, but he wanders backstage and he keeps wandering, and he goes to the balcony outside next to an adjacent theater and ends up talking to an actress played by Margot Robbie who was supposed to be in his play, but her scene got cut and it was supposed to be a scene of the husband and wife in heaven or a dream of them in heaven and the discussion they have. And she recites the monologue. And I found and the film just, you know, which has been very, very busy and, and moving about and, and, you know, the camera moves, the people move, all kinds of things are happening. And it just kind of dwells on that. And it's just, this really remarkably moving monologue about about loss and about death and about uh, just sort of the the, va- the vastness of it all. And to me, that's kind of like brought the whole movie into focus for me. I mean, that's, that's kind of what it's all about. The rest isn't just noise, you know. But but it is ultimately all kind of in service of of that thing. And and also the moment when you realize that the when you're told that the playwright, but responsible for all this, has died. So you have this. Author who's no longer present, whose work we're supposed to make sense of, not unlike those of us here on, on Earth uh, and who have, you know, wonder what it's all about and have no one to tell us. And then, then you have the the actual characters in the work itself asking the same questions. To me, I mean, you know, I am I, I looking forward to seeing it again. I, I don't feel like this one really eluded me the first time as others have the only movie that was like kind of lessened to me on, on, on revisiting it was, was French dispatch. But like, you know, from, from Tenenbaums on, it's like, I've always liked the movies better each time I've, I've gone back to them and that I suspect that might be the case here too. But I also felt like, you know, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of got this one. I don't, I don't know though.
1: I will say, I think there's a, one of the things I admire about this movie and admire about, Anderson in general is just it is a work of narrative architecture it's so elegant and and, and so multi-layered and and uh in this case uh you know metafictional but I mean you, you you kind of got into a little bit of Bilga's review and and reading that review or just his basic description of it as as you know of what it was going to be of of this tv special about a play within a film and have all these different layers I was like kind of hearing that description, I was kind of anticipating, you know, a a sort of Grand Budapest hotel type experience where all of this kind of architecture and all of these, uh, all of this stuff was going to just pay off in an exciting way, particularly when things go sort of haywire in the third act. And I, it didn't quite just, it didn't have that immediate like pop to me, which is again, not to say I I I just don't trust my instincts in a way to kind of, like I said, as you were saying, to get this film. I just I don't quite get it. I don't quite trust myself that my first reaction, because I suspect, as Tasha was saying, that all the pieces that are are supposed to be there are there. I just, uh, you know, I just, you know, I, I find myself kind of grasping at it a little bit more.
0: I think maybe one of the elements here, I've been sort of trying to piece together, I think it was the Steven Soderbergh film Full Frontal that was made primarily via a a form of improvisation where he worked with the actors closely to kind of create the characters and have them in a a very Mike Lace kind of way. working with the actors to get them to know their characters well enough that they could kind of like piece together this narrative. And there's a behind the scenes snippet of him working with Julia Roberts. And he's confronting her with, uh, he's basically interviewing her, and she's in character. And then he brings something up, I think about maybe her being an Oscar winning actress. And she kind of blinks and she's like, wait, am i and he's like well you are and he's talking about Julia Roberts and not the character that she's trying to be in and she like comedically deliberately uh, showily freaks out and like leaves the trailer she's just like i don't know who i am i don't i don't know what's going on anymore and i feel like that's what happens with augie's character and it's specifically because of a moment where the character that he's interacting with played by Scarlett Johansson challenges him to use the grief over the death of his wife in the reading of a play that she's rehearsing that is the character's next acting project, because the character is an actress. And it seems like that's maybe what sets Augie off, is he's being asked to think of he is an actor playing oh the role of a man who's being asked to play an actor. He's being asked to use the grief of his character to play a third character. And it just seems like that's where it all spirals out of control. And I feel like on a second or third viewing, we might be able to put together more of this kind of like, like layered effect. There are all of these ideas within the story. Uh, the one that maybe stands out for me most is the the bank of vending machines that sells things like pre-mixed martinis, uh, which we actually get to see mixed within the machine, but also real estate, you know, uh, chunks of land in Asteroid <laughs> City. It's a really funny image, but as with pretty much everything else in this movie and maybe most things in Wes Anderson movies, all the characters take it very, very seriously and discuss it just completely without affect. And I feel like there's just a lot of different puzzle pieces that much like Augie, much like Julia Roberts, I'm not quite equipped to see like how all of the different layers of the narrative work together.
2: I think it's the strangest film. I, I, do, I think it is uh, one where it is just very... You know, happy to be very a very peculiar experience, and to have a, a very amusingly off kilter world in a way even that other Wes Anderson movies aren't. Um, you know, I I don't know. I, I, I did really en- I enjoyed spending time in this world.
1: Was there a large percentage of the the movie for you all where you just thought I'm just watching a movie where you just forget about the whole. <laughs> framing of it as a yeah as a, for sure i mean there's but so I much i mean it's, just, it's a massive amount of the film uh, i mean and i guess maybe that makes it more effective when you get to that scene that you're talking about keith where you'll get that reminder it's, it's more bracing because because it's not a uh device that that anderson has leaned into maybe as much as you expect given the you, you know given the setup
0: that didn't happen for me though i mean I was thinking the entire time about how we were specifically going to compare it with Synecdoche and and talk about the meta aspects mm. and and the play aspects. But I was also trying to use that as, you know, in the way uh, Caden's attempt to make art is kind of the key to understanding, like, all of the bizarreries of Synecdoche. I felt like surely the idea that none of this is really happening and it's all a play is part of the key to what's going on here, to what this story is, is fundamentally about. So I kept that pretty consciously front of mind. And the fact that the whole world looks like a, a stage set, like everything is very flat and simplistic and everything ceases to exist if you go past a certain fairly small radius uh, to the borders of this town, I, I think kept it pretty top of mind for me.
2: But it's so cinematic though, you know, yeah. I know I know what you're saying. I appreciate Dog, your dogville. I think, this I think you're not. right.
1: What's that? Dogville, this is not.
0: It's not Dogville but Wes Anderson is very conscious. There's so many shots in this where one character is standing uh, like extremely close to the camera and then two or more uh, characters are standing further away and it's just a who's upstage who's downstage mm-hmm. kind of scenario and that to me felt much more theatrical than cinematic for instance. Uh the whole business with the alien is very much in keeping with uh, some other recent Wes Anderson films. I don't want to say more than that, mm-hmm. but there's something very, it feels more like a stage effect than a movie effect to me.
1: Oh my God. I love the alien so much. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is one thing I, I, I you know, I'm going to need another viewing to get to, to get my head wrapped around this movie. But like the alien, I'm quite certain. I love <laughs> that. The thing is incredible.
2: I feel like we're kind of edging into comparisons. But before we get to that, I kind of want to talk about the Wes Anderson stock company, which keeps growing, uh, we got a lot of returnees. Which well, uh, let's talk about some of the new additions uh, this time around. Uh, I thought Tom Hanks was was kind of overdue and and, and uh, to be in a, in a uh, Anderson movie. I mean, he doesn't he's not the lead here, but he he fits right in. I I really enjoy his scenes. He's really good with with, with Schwartzman in particular, and you know, Steve Carell is another uh, sort of natural for 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 Wes Anderson. And Johansson is new to live action. Action, but she was one of the voices in Isle of Dogs, right?
1: Well, not, I, I think I think Matt, I'm pretty sure Matt Dillon is new to the <laughs> yeah to the Wes Anderson universe as well. I, I don't know who Jake Ryan is who plays uh, Woodrow, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but that's a very very fine performance and, and really a, a, a important performance. I mean, as all as many stars mm-hmm. are in this movie, like that is a very very important role, and uh, I thought quite beautifully played.
0: That said, I I think I was maybe most mesmerized in all of this by the three little girls, uh, who I believe are triplets, (laughs) who play Augie's three daughters and have decided that they're a trifecta of witches, but also maybe one of them's a mummy and one of them's a half vampire. I I forget. They go through a couple of different iterations.
2: I love those kids.
0: In another movie, like in a, a Village of the Damned type scenario, these kids would be terrifying. And as <laughs> it is, they're both cute, they're so cute and kind of weirdly creepy, but they, they fit into the Wes Anderson world uh, better than I would expect children so young to to do. I
1: think he, he must have a way, though, of just getting actors to get to the place that he needs them to be. Because I, I, I can't really think of a of somebody of an actor who's come into a wes anderson film and like not fit right mm-hmm. i mean like they, they all kind of fit because he just has you know he, he has a way of kind of direct their manner of speech their posture you know their position in the frame which obviously he's very closely choreographing there's not a lot of space for steve carell to wild out for example he, he's not going to go off and on a lot of improvisational tangents and, and I think Tom Hanks is an actor who's proven himself to be pretty malleable to what uh, a filmmaker kind of needs from him and, and willing to kind of go out, off on a, you know, out on a limb to when when required. Um, so, I, th- I th- you know, I think everyone fits in just fine as as, they, as I would expect them to.
0: I mean, in keeping with Wes Anderson's kind of legendary sense of control, I have to assume that he's auditioned very famous actors and just sort of decided like, no, you you're not you're not doing what I need you to do, uh, what I have visualized in my head. Like there've gotta be people that just haven't made the cut before they ever got on a set. It's it's not possible that everybody in the world is capable of Wes Andersonian presentation.
2: It may be also why he keeps going back to the same people, but I but I also imagine that that unlike other directors with, you know, famous for their sense of control it must be kind of fun or at least a little at least not horrible to work for Wes Anderson given that people he's able to get people to come back again and again
0: yeah i hope so i mean Certainly could see a Kubrickian method resulting in this kind of like monotonal, mildly dead-eyed delivery from everybody. This is the eight hundred forty-sixth take, and I have no emotions left. Just, I, I assume <laughs> that he does not work that way.
2: Just nothing else, how little these we are, know. I mean, like these I, are like
0: small-budgeted see- movies. Like he, I, uh, surely he doesn't have have time for eight hundred takes.
2: Just, just, just backseat footage of Wes Anderson bringing uh, Adrian Brody to tears. Yeah, that, well, that's the thing. <laughs> <like, laughs> take after take.
1: I've seen plenty of behind the scenes footage of you know the the types of the small touches he likes to put in his movies and in the production design and all all, that sort of thing but you don't hear do you hear anything about how he works with actors and how what that experience is like is that any you know whether he demands 100 takes or something or whether no, he, he does rehearsals, whether everything is done on the set, like whether there's room for improvisation, like all like, has that discussion happened with him or have I, and I've missed it surely. Right. Not, really. He seems really. to do very limited interviews.
2: He talked to me. I interviewed him once, but what it was, that's when he was, you know, young enough and, and hungry enough to do interviews. Yeah, <laughs> um, I remember there's a moment on the road. I in was the invited world-
0: on a road trip on his uh, personal oh, right. train and they rescinded, it sounded like the most exciting thing in the universe and they like rescinded it. Like eight hours before. Yeah, that I've was weird. Never I been sadder. That. But uh, been um,
2: incredible. um, I, there's a moment on like there's a real ten behind the scene feature where they're dealing with with the hawk right the, the in, in the in that film and like he talks to the trainers like can like so like can the hawk kind of like hover for a second before it lands and the trainer looks at him like what do you know <laughs> <That's not> how, <laughs> not how hawks work you know that that to me perhaps that's like the best peek behind the curtain I, I, I've seen of, of Wes Anderson sensibility on the set, but he was perfectly genial about it. I don't th- I don't know if there's necessarily like a, a monster, uh, uh, the, um, you know, monstrous behavior that we just haven't heard about, uh, but who knows? I will
0: say, I mean, I found this film uh, very genial. I found it pretty funny in a deadpan kind of way. I enjoyed it. I'm positive on it, but I get to a point where I just don't care for the Andersonian performance anymore. <laughs> just in terms of, it's gotten more and more and more mannered to the point where I'm just not seeing emotion in any of the actors anymore. And there are a couple different bits in Asteroid City specifically where people are called upon to express emotions that other people feel they should have. And they they do it in a a strained, this is unnatural and I don't know how to do it kind of way that makes the uh, the very idea of having natural emotions feel like, awkward and alien. And to my mind it it starts to become self-parody, you know? It's his stuff has been becoming more and more and more mannered and while there are places where I really like it when everybody is giving the exact same performance, it starts to get feel a little too M Night Shyamalan for me. It just mm. it starts to feel like I like a lot of these actors because they're good at acting and and part, I like movies because they make me feel things and I just, I really am not sure that this movie is designed to make you feel anything. It's Uh. And it's a very intellectual exercise. Oh, see,
2: I don't agree with that. I, that yeah. I don't. I,
1: I mean, I. Keith, I think we've already brought up some of the moments that you know, uh, you know, the, the moment with Margot Robbie is important. I think. I think there's some scenes between scenes involving Jake, Jake Ryan's character that are that are really important and moving. I think all of the stuff with Jason Schwartzman and, and his wife's ashes, and you know, I mean, that's an absurd thing to have in that piece of Tupperware. But but when when he finally does have to talk to um his family about what happened. To her, I think there's a there's some that that I found found touching in its way, and I, and I'm just convinced that he's able to pack a lot into small moments, which is again that whole second viewing phenomenon with him of just like I'm gonna, you know, you're gonna see just like a line, there'll be a line. That's just gonna open everything up. I mean, like, like Royal Tendenbaum says, it, it it all kind of comes down to it's been a hard year, Dad, or mm-hmm. something like that. Like that's just that one little moment, or I'm thinking, or that moment in, uh, in Rushmore where Max Fisher finally introduces the Bill Murray character to his to his father, and the look on Bill Bill Murray's face. It's just that, that look of re- of recognition. Such a small moment. Is so important in kind of unlocking um, where the film is at emotionally, and and I I'm just going to trust that I think th- those moments are there in Asteroid City, and I'm going to trust that I'm going to respond <laughs> maybe a little more strongly than I did uh, on this first viewing.
0: Well, I mean, it feels like the the core moment here has to be the point where the entire movie yells at you about what the theme is. I mean there's a, a literal breakdown where everybody in the cast like looks at the screen and we, we cut from place to place to place with everybody in each case. Like it's, it's a, it's a Spike Lee, like wake up, people wake up moment, you know, and what they're all chanting. It is, but
2: like you, you, the, the chant is you can't wake up if you don't go to sleep. And, and, you know, if that's the message of the film, please explain it to me because <laughs> yeah. I I you know, yeah, I, I there's a couple of it, different yeah. ways that things it could be, but I don't think there's any, it's also pretty pretty cryptic as well.
0: Well, I mean, uh, the way I took it by that time I was feeling pretty numbed by that time in the movie by so much input, you know, so much very fast paced dialogue, so many kind of like big ideas and big changes packed into such a small space, so many characters, so many emotions that were not being expressed, so many buried things, so much delivered in all the same monotone at the same exact rhythm. And it had kind of like lulled me into a a hypnotic place where I was kind of forcing myself to take notes because I'm like, you're going to walk out not remembering much of this. And then suddenly all of these characters are telling me, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. And I'm thinking, this movie has lulled me into a form of sleep. This movie has literally hypnotized me. This is a piece of art that has pulled me into this very artificial realm where everything is pastel and and flat and presentational and play like and all of these characters only interact in this one specific way, and I'm going to walk out of it and the entire rest of the world is just going to seem so much more like vivid and alluring and emotional and and real. I I, I really felt like he was speaking to me in that moment and saying this movie has hypnotized you so you can experience the real world in a new way when you come out of it. That's what it said for me.
2: And here you're saying you didn't react to it. (laughs) Like, You you have the deepest reaction of all of us. Well, we can talk about this more after (laughs) the break. Uh, We'll be right back in a few minutes to talk about connections and bring in our old friend Santa New York, and talk about how it relates to Asteroid City.
0: You took a picture of me.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Why? I'm a photographer.
0: You didn't ask permission?
2: I never ask permission. Why not? Because I work in trenches, battlefields, and combat zones. Really? Uh Uh-huh. You mean you're a war photographer?
1: Mostly. Sometimes I cover sporting events.
0: My name is Augie Steenbeck.
1: What are you going to do with that?
2: That picture.
0: huh hmm. Well, if it's any good, I guess I'll try to sell it to a magazine. Now that you mention it, Midge Campbell eating a waffle.
2: Now it's time for connections, where we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. So, when you first proposed, this is a this is a Tasha Robinson idea. This this pairing. And when you first proposed, it was like I don't I don't know. I knew there was a meta element to the anderson film but it didn't strike me as as i didn't think it could possibly be as you know important or key to the film as it was it's just to seductive new york and yet here we are i think it's actually a really quite strong quite a few strong connections let's start with the metanist how, how do they use that the, the framework and the self-awareness and the postmodern touches are, are, are they working toward the same ends here
0: I think that, for me at least, Asteroid City did feel like it was, again, about the struggle to create art. Maybe because, as you say, that the key feeling moment, at least, the maybe most viscerally emotional moment, is when the actor playing Augie steps away from his role mid-play to go question what he's doing and why. And the director, played by Adrian Brody, says... You know, yeah, you, you don't understand the play. You have to just go do it. It feels part and parcel to me with Synecdoche in terms of there's art going on and you have to be a part of it. And it's trying to portray life, but it's portraying it in a, a very flattened and artificial way. But the only way you're going to understand it is by doing it. You're not going to understand it by me trying to tell you what you feel. So in, in the same sort of way, both of these stories do seem to be about people struggling for connection, people kind of losing track of what's important and people examining the art that they're making as they're making it and, and trying to see whether there's something real there, something meaningful, something that that feeds them.
1: But the, the one contrast, though, here is that, you know, you certainly get in Synexia, New York, who the Charlie Kaufman person is uh, and that person is at the center of the movie and it is it is that mind and that impulse to create art all that is examined that's the Caden character that's Philip Seymour Hoffman the writer here is uh, what Edward Norton's character right
2: mm-hmm.
1: right I mean so, so I'm, I say that as as if I'm asking a question and so that, I mean, that, that there is a pretty strong contrast between the two in terms of these movies as potentially being portraits of an artist and, and how art works and what the att- attempt is and what it tells us about the person who's creating it is it's, it's it's a lot more distant from that creator character Asteroid City is the, than uh, Synecdoche.
0: Well, I mean, one thing that you might want to keep in mind is that with Synecdoche, the director and writer is the same person both in terms of the movie that you're seeing and in terms of like the on-screen avatar of him mm-hmm. but in asteroid city you have a writer who's like a cloistered crotchety person who pushes people away mm-hmm. but people can get around him by knowing the very precise things that he likes and then there's also the director who's just been through a tremendous loss and is separated from his life and from the the person he loves and is trying to navigate his his successes and his failures and is also the one telling people like just get get in there and do the art champ so those are those are kind of two very different characters and i don't know if you want to try to see them as two different aspects of wes anderson or two different characters very much outside wes anderson I just don't feel at this point like I know Wes Anderson as a person well enough to say where he is in this movie, if he is in this movie.
2: I know his sensibility. And I certainly know yeah. the style is instantly recognizable. I I, I, I know his sensibility. I, I think I feel like I have a, a – there's a, there's a sort of a, a – wistful bittersweet uh drollness that unites all his films but you know as for the man himself i, I don't i don't, don't you know i don't feel like there's this powerful charlie kaufman-esque personality that we've ever seen in you know in interviews or in, presented as sort of a surrogate in one of his movies either
1: well i mean you you mentioned the ben stiller character in royal tenenbaum seeming i guess like somebody we might compare to wes wes anderson but i mean that until you said that, it never would have occurred to me. Yeah, <laughs> to, be the to me, case. it's just a matter
2: of, of the, it's the character uh, of most concerned about creating control. sort of some order out of chaos. You know, yeah, which
1: is... yeah, He's been through he's been through a lot, and is right. So I mean, but that's that's sort of telling, isn't it? Because because you can you can watch any Charlie Kaufman movie and re, and and point at the Charlie Kaufman guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know who that you know where he is in this in his movies, and it's not like Wes. You, you don't see where Wes Anderson's fingerprints on every single thing i mean quite literally as fingerprints i guess if you're talking about isle of dogs and fantastic mr fox but like in terms of i I, you know identifying any specific character as a reflection of of who wes anderson might be you know that becomes a much thornier proposition it feels like at, at that level there's a little bit of distance
0: there's a small press companion book that I'm going to be very interested in picking up called Do Not Detonate Without Presidential Approval, which is the stamp <laughs> that we that. see on, on the side of uh, awesome. an atomic bomb being shipped off to testing. Mm-hmm. But it's a collection of essays about movies that Wes Anderson says inspired this, this movie. And... Like, as far as I can tell, they're all like older pieces. Like there's uh, Molly Haskell writing about Ace in the Hole and. Uh, Ace in the Hole, yeah. Here's a, there's a piece from uh, Pauline Kale about Nashville, and uh, there's a, a piece about The River's Edge, a piece about Inferno, a piece about Failsafe, a piece about Marilyn Monroe. Well,
1: are they are, are, are so th- these are all previously written pieces then, or, or?
0: There's an interview at the top with Wes Anderson that I'm hoping has uh, some kind of insight into how all these pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you know, they're older works that mm-hmm. are just kind of meant to be explicative about some of those specific movies that well movies and other elements that inspired him mm-hmm. and it just feels like that, the most Fran-
2: francois Truffaut did not write an original essay for this book
0: nor did uh jorge luis borgia mm-hmm. uh, there's there's a, just a lot in here that uh, somehow he did not get basley crowther to write something new about
1: what about reveal subscriber molly haskell molly haskell subscribes to our newsletter I'm just, I'm geeking out about that still. It's been a couple of weeks. I feel free I, 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 to continue geeking. Not to, not to, not to pull back the curtain, but yeah, I can't, not, not, now it's like, I can't think of Molly Haskell now. It's just, it's, it's blowing my mind. We got to shape up or ship out Keith. <laughs> the,
0: the point is though that the subtitle of this book is a portfolio on the subjects of mid century cinema, the Broadway stage, and the American West. And it, just seems so Wes Anderson that he would approve a book of previously established writings about a variety of movies as indicative
1: of what he was trying to do with this movie,
0: rather than granting interviews about what he was trying to do with this movie. So it just, I don't know, it all seems it's very It's How deep.
1: how he processes all this stuff too, because he 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 knows film history really well. But when it all said and done, these these things do get made into Wes Anderson movies. <laughs> like uh, you know, I, I I the one time I did interview him was in connection to the Darjeeling Limited. And so we had, you know, so he did talk quite a bit about the influence of Satyajit Ray on that film or, and genre is the river. And of course, you know, you can, you can look and, you know, see those influences if you'd like, but you know, he's still making his movies. They're still, you know, the, the, the way the, these things don't get, uh, the, he processes them in their own, in his own way.
2: I mean, Nashville's interesting too, because certainly the expansive cast of, of, yes. you know, disparate characters gathered in one place it's as much about the places as about them, you know. That's that's there's very Nashville, but but like, there's not a a, a less Altman esque director than, than yeah. Wes Anderson. Yeah, like the,
1: there's not a, <laughs> not any overlapping dialogue or improvisational technique there. It's like you know, he's not just kind of like hanging out. I mean, there's always a thing with Robert Altman where he just sort of like establishes sort of a world of the film and then just sort of hangs out there and catches things and like that is that is not that is not the Anderson way of doing things.
0: Or in the case of Nashville, sort of trying to capture the spirit of a real place as opposed to Wes Anderson creating these extremely mannered artificial spaces uh, that in many cases look like little dollhouses or, you know, to be more meta about it, that look like film, spe- film sets. And the idea of, of Nashville, I I just want to see him talk about how Nashville was an inspiration. But kind of like looking through the interview here that he gives as far as where all these pieces fit into place, I'm just seeing answers where he just sort of like talks factually, like he he just talks in like sub Wikipedia entries about like the history of Marilyn Monroe, as opposed to talking about why Marilyn Monroe was an inspiration for the Scarlett Johansson character or what he felt was important to draw from her. I'm not sure there are going to be a ton of answers in this book, and yet I'm still a little fascinated with it.
2: So we touched on another connection, which is that both these films have very large casts of recognizable Actors in the, in Santa Fe, New York. You know Samantha Morton and Michelle Williams and Catherine Keener and and Diane Weist and so on. These are recognizable faces. Not always that. Not, not always in the biggest roles. There's actually an overlap too. Hope Davis is in both of these films as well. Oh my God, Hope Davis.
1: Can I just say? Can I say just say the name Tom Noonan because we haven't said it yet. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I was going to bring I, him up Tom too. Noonan, I think Tom Noonan is stunningly good in a synecdoche. That that performance just completely kicked my ass on this viewing. So I just want to throw that name out there. Uh, as far as the All Star cast goes, it's funny to me. Like we were kind of talking about this, like. Uh, Synecdoche New York looks like looks like a community theater production compared to Asteroid City in terms of like the amount of just gigantic stars who who are in this film, all in you know very modest roles
0: and all kind of doing the same sort of presentational acting. Like I think there's a, a kind of humor to the way Synecdoche puts Morton and Williams together and kind of has them being the same person and dressed and, uh, you know, bewigged in order to appear like even more like the same person. And I can't remember who the third uh, person who gets thrown in to the point where it, it just starts to look like when you put two mirrors up against each other and there's just reflections of the same thing, that hall of mirrors feeling that you're getting towards the end of the movie. And then with uh, Asteroid City, you've got Steve Carell and Liev Schreiber and Matt Dillon, and they were all kind of dressed the same and given the same sort of like 50s haircut and told to address the camera in the same sort of way. And three just extremely different actors with different presentations suddenly all kind of become mirror images of each other. And that's uh, Tom Hanks just feels like kind of an older Is he an older Matt Dillon? Is he an older Steve Carell? Is he an older Jason Schwartzman? Who knows? Uh, Everybody is kind of the same person in this movie. That's actually a reason that Scarlett Johansson stands out is because she's given a role that doesn't fall into that presentational thing. She's doing a kind of drawly Marilyn Monroe impression that just sort of feels over it all. And whereas everybody else is kind of descending into the hall of mirrors, she's kind of coming across as like this jaded figure who's already more or less on to the next thing and thus maybe doesn't feel as connected to the current thing as anyone else.
2: Yeah, I really I really like that performance um, a lot. There's 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 a, there's, a, you know, shades of melancholy there, especially that, that I thought were, were were well served by that performance
0: small shades of asperity, like when she confronts him about taking her picture in the diner, there's mm-hmm. just there's a, a bit of control and sharpness to like how her image is going to be used and how people are regarding her that I'm not sure Marilyn Monroe had.
1: Is there a thing, though, where we might expect more from actors who are bigger just as stars? I mean, be, you know, people like Tom Hanks and and, and Steve Carell and, you know, Edward Norton and Mar- Mar- Margot Robbie as like, you know, a scene. Like, maybe just not not give cr- enough credit to. I think there are actors who really do stand out and, and have, have fully realized, you know, characters at least as fully realized as they can, they can be and, and that are more important to the fabric of the movie. I'm thinking specifically of, you know, Jason Schwartzman and also, you know, Jake Ryan, who's, was, who was, you know, again, n- not a star, but is, a, is really important uh, to the movie. You know, I, I don't know. I think I think they kind of all sort of work in, you know, I, I think it's fine. I think if we can reconcile ourselves to the fact that we have huge stars playing very minor roles, roles that are supporting roles, you know, I guess at, at best. I mean, I, I, you know, whatever something slightly less than supporting roles are, you know, then we can kind of like really focus on on the, the handful of characters who are really important to the film emotionally.
0: Yeah, I mean when you've got Jeff Goldblum showing up for like two lines and just his presence being a joke, but mm-hmm. like Sophia Lillis is maybe one of the bigger standout characters in the entire movie. Yeah. I, I think that's just a very Wes Andersonian like it it's kind of a gag, you know? Uh, having having Jeff Goldblum there is kind of a gag that he's sharing with the audience.
2: Well, also it's set up, you know, Jeff Goldblum as the alien. When you first see the alien, it's a stop motion thing who doesn't say anything. Like maybe you get a grunt, and then have him back render I don't know. I that was that was all really that was all really funny. I don't know. I I I'm, I I I enjoyed this film.
0: We should also Other- maybe call out uh, Brian Cranston as the host, as yes. somebody who he's doing a Rod Sterling impression more or less. But then there's a point where he gets accidentally caught, quote unquote, on screen in the play, you know, in the the color edition of the world. And he's very embarrassed and awkward. That's like a nice little meta touch that also lets him do something outside of the character that he's playing for the frame story to the frame story to the movie.
2: The uh, Rod Serling framing device, by the way, um, made me think of a film I always like to shout out, which is Vast of Night, that came out a couple of mm-hmm. years ago, the low budget science fiction thing that uh, oh, yeah. uh, has oh, has nice the same film. has the same framework as, as this as well. Oh, yeah. uh, but we're not comparing those two films. We're talking about uh, uh, these two films. We're talking about Spectre in New York and Asteroid City. I, I, you know, theater is is a big part of. Both. And we kind of touched on a little bit about the theatricality of the the set for Asteroid City. You know, with the Synapticade, we had multiple sets, but also just the central concern is someone trying to make a, a theater piece. What is, uh, you know, what are these films doing talking about theater so much?
1: Well, the proscenium thing has been with... Anderson from the from Rushmore, right? I mean, I guess Mm -hmm. maybe not a part of the the first one, but that Rushmore opens with the the curtains parting, so that's kind of an element. I and I almost feel like the theater part of it, you know, just the fact, just that having that that quotation really in place in both films kind of ties into the the that other connection too with with these movies which is which is that they they can explore really big questions I mean there, there's just something there's something about being able to kind of step away and and talk about and, and and think about what what a piece of art is actually trying to do which is what these films put us in the mind of right of, of just what these creators are attempting what is being what is being expressed here by by the works within the work those 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 kind of a way of accessing you know these kind of larger questions that the filmmakers are trying to ask
0: i think there's also just an implicit understanding that when you're putting on a play you're making art that's ephemeral you know unless it's being shot as a movie it, you're making something for a specific audience that's present at a specific time. And once that audience is gone, once that story is over, once that show closes, this particular piece of art doesn't exist anymore. And I, I think that's one of the things that makes it like metatextually rich in a way that Hollywood loves movies about movie making. And as people who love movies, we often love movies about movie, movie making, but movies about directing plays or creating plays are really more inherently. I mean, look at at Babylon and how that movie ends with, you know, a, a diegesis on the entire concept of we're making art that will outlive us. We're making art that people will connect to a century from now when we're all dust. That's not true with a play. You know, with a play, you're trying to connect with a character and a, a an audience and a performance in the moment. And I think when Augie steps off the stage and gives us a glimpse of the audience watching and goes to ask, like, what am I doing? It's because he feels like he's lost that connection. You know, when when the cast member asks, like, when are we going to get an audience? It's been 17 years. When, when are there going to be people watching us? It's because they're a collection of actors that have been honing their craft all this time without ever having an audience to connect to. And... Therefore, are they, you know, it's a, if a tree drops in an empty forest, does it make a noise question? Like, are they making art if they're only making it for each other and not for an
2: audience? I had that feeling with our podcast. Sometimes we sit out in the world and just, <laughs> does anyone listen? We don't, you know, give us some feedback. <laughs> yes, let us, just to say, I just say we're listening this is a
0: juggernaut, we, man. We, we've been doing we this for a need while. Your f- we, need, we need your feedback because it's just so much more, Uh, like, it feels so much more like a connection than just seeing the download numbers. Like, we we need to know that you're out there. It's been 17 years that we've been making this podcast, guys. Like, are we really, are we really making anything? Hey, wait, is been. this recorder on?
2: It always feels like, a, it always has been 17 years. We're not that far away. Anyway, Synaptic New York is currently streaming on the Criterion channel and it's rentable through various services. It's also available on DVD and Blu-ray. Asteroid City is currently in theaters. We'll be back in a moment to talk about Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Uh, So we've had a few films about Multiverses lately, uh, and like you know, immediately bring our our listeners behind the curtain. Immediately after this, I, I turned around to Tasha, who's at the same screening as I was, and said, "Yeah, it's a pretty good pairing. Let's do it." And we talked about all the reasons to do it, and we could do it. On the way out, I thought, and I don't regret it. I think it's been, I've really enjoyed this conversation. But the way I thought, you know, what else would work? The man who wasn't there, the 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 Cohen brothers' film, uh, set in roughly the same time period, um, also involving eventually a, a UFO, and I think it's also kind of interested in the time period in the same way that Asteroid City is in ways that we haven't really got into because one thing that's going on in Asteroid City throughout is these series of nuclear blasts. You know, we're dealing... with It's set in 1955. Um, you know, Made Wasn't There it was set roughly around the same time. And this is, you know, in some ways just ordinary people trying to figure out their place in a universe that's suddenly destabilized by the atomic bomb. And that's very much the case in *The Man Who Wasn't There*. Uh, there is a, also kind of, you know, an existentialism that unites uh, both both them as, as as well, in the sense that Billy Bob Thornton's character that is is is, is you know, n- you know, not out of it wouldn't be out of place in, in the stranger or something, if someone commits some some horrible acts and then kind of has to reflect on on you know his own his own you know role in making these decisions anyway this is my miniature version of, of the, what this podcast might have looked like in another universe we went with that instead of this and a, certainly a, a recommendation for what is you know as cohen brothers films go perhaps a little overlooked uh oh, scott what? i know you're a fan of this one how about, how about how about you tasha are you a man who wasn't there Fan,
0: I remember um, being maybe when when it first came out. It's which was in uh, two thousand one. I saw it, and I, at the time, I was just very very taken with Billy Bob Thornton. I remember so little about this movie, except for the moment where Birdie makes a move on Ed, and he says, "Heavens to Betsy, Birdie," which I do <laughs> say just around the house a lot uh-huh. when when I wish to convey a particularly prim response to anything that surprises me. But what I remember about the film is the cinematography, particularly smoke drifting through black spaces. I, I feel like I maybe didn't even really see this movie when I saw this movie because I was so distracted by how visually beautiful it is. And it's one I absolutely need to revisit.
1: Yeah, it's one of my it's one of my faves of the the Coens, and I mean that's hard to say sometimes because they have made so many movies I love, but I, I do feel a particular connection to this um, because it's they're working on the in a genre that I you know have a special affinity for and with noir, and then I think Billy Bob Thornton's performance is just incredible, just like the, just the willingness to do that little, <laughs> you know, to 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 pare back that much it, it, that is. Bold, uh, you know, it's bold on the part of Bill Bob Thornton and also on the part of the, of the Coens, you know, who who like to have big performances in their movies to kind of to kind of say, OK, we're going to make this center of this movie. The man who wasn't there. We're going to have that him sort of pull, pull back and maybe some of the other elements of the film are going to kind of pop a little bit more. But beautiful work by Francis McDormand in this movie. Beautiful work by James Gandolfini in this movie. Um, Scarlett
2: Johansson in this movie as well. Scarlett Johansson.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very. Gosh, not pretty pretty early in the Scarlett Johansson's career, I guess. Right? I mean, well, early's hard to say because she was in the, the Horse Whisperer way back in the day. But anyway, uh, lovely film, and, and obviously, you know, if people have not seen it, <laughs> they need or, or need to see it again, or maybe revisit it because I, I do uh, think it's great and uh, one of the con's best.
2: Well, that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. But we'll be back next week with another set of episodes. Tasha, do you want to tell us about our next episodes? Actually, this is Tasha's understudy, Genevieve, popping in for the preview portion of this episode.
0: Writer-director Celine Song's debut film, Past Lives, follows the relationship between Nora and Hae Sung, two childhood friends born in Seoul, South Korea, whose lives take drastically different courses after they turn 12, and Nora's family immigrates to Canada. When they reconnect via Skype 11 years later, Nora is studying theater in New York with aspirations of becoming a playwright, and Sung has just completed military service and is choosing his own path. When they reconnect again in the present, their lives have changed once more. And the question of what might have been and depiction of a nascent romance that might never develop into anything more put us in mind of Once, John Carney's 2007 film about a creative partnership between two struggling musicians in Dublin. We'll explore both films and both relationships with our next episodes.
2: For now, we welcome your feedback on Selektiki, New York, Asteroid City, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha.
0: I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter at Tosh Robinson, where I even occasionally say something. And uh, as of this taping, tomorrow morning, I am headed over to NPR to talk to our dear friends at Pop Culture Happy Hour about Elemental. So I'm hoping by the time this episode drops, you can listen to that if you want to hear what we think. Scott, what about you?
1: Uh, yeah, so I'm um, on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. I'm on Blue Sky as well. You know, just look at my name. I, 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 those, those addresses are very confusing. I am, uh, my primary uh, writing source is the newsletter I do with Keith. It's The Reveal. You can find that at thereveal.substack.com. I just, just wrote a piece about uh, the late uh, Treat Williams and his performance in Smooth Talk. And I was uh, kind, of, kind of pleased of pleased with and uh, we've got some other exciting things in in the pipeline including our, our uh, next sight and sound movie which is a uh, discussion movie which is going to be uh, the earrings of madam day um uh, my work is also in the new york times uh, it's in uh, uh vulture guardian other fine publications what about you keith
2: I'm a freelance writer. I write for a bunch of different places. You can find me on Twitter at KFIP3000. I'm also on Blue Sky now at KFIP3000 plus whatever other nonsense you have at the end of of that. Uh, You can find my work at places like GQ, Vulture, TV Guide, The Ringer occasionally, and of course, very regularly at The Reveal, a newsletter I co-write with our friend Scott Tobias. Um, yeah, I'm gonna, by the time this comes out, I'll have an interview with uh, with uh, Will Leach about the film Shortcuts, which was a big inspiration for his new novel. And our absent co-host, Genevieve Kosky, is the TV editor at Vulture and is very rarely on Twitter uh, under her name. Genevieve Kosky is at Genevieve Kosky. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at, at Next Picture Pod. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com Next Picture Show. And as always, we appreciate your rating and reviews on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan, the Baked Jakes, for his assistance producing the podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.